morning, everyone. Feels awkward to have such a small crowd again, uh, but we know there are several people who are dealing with the different sicknesses or symptoms or just quarantined and all of that. So um, I want to just take a time and we're just going to pray for all those families that are doing that. Again, I don't have any symptoms. I tested negative, but I'm just trying to be respectful and responsible for everyone who's here. Uh, But let's go ahead and, and just take us and pray for our families. God, we come before you, and Lord, there are so many who are dealing with different sicknesses from COVID to uh, even strep throat. We ask, God, that you would pour into them your strength, your patience. And Lord, as we are distracted and even distanced from each other right now, would you bring a sense of unity and closeness as we are combined within one another through the Spirit? As we go into your word today, I ask God that you would speak to us, give us all your your compassion and your patience. Fill us with your wisdom as we look to see how we can be your people here in this world. And then it doesn't matter if we have sicknesses or symptoms, but we are living as your children. In Jesus we all pray. Amen. Now there used to be a thing going around a lot, it was called newspaper ads. Okay, we don't see a lot of them anymore because they're all online or anything. But this following ad once appeared in a London newspaper. Look at this ad. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. This ad was signed by Sir Ernest Uh, Shackleton, um, Antarctic Explorer, and after he placed this ad, you can see in 1912, amazingly, thousands of men came in response, eager to sacrifice everything for this meaningful adventure. This year, our theme is destination. All year, we've been going through the book of Acts. We started chapter 13 last week with Barnabas and Paul being sent out to proclaim the gospel. And I believe we're going to see some of those things that we can all expect in our own meaningful adventure with God. We need to really look at this, that this is a call from God, an advertisement that says, come and join the greatest adventure you're ever going to know. If you were here last Sunday, we first we saw that first mission trip recorded in, in scriptures. When the apostle uh, Paul and Barnabas are launched from Antioch, they blast off with a specific mission in mind, and they take the gospel message and start the global process. They get in a boat, set sail, and they land in Cyprus, and they preach to, they preach about Jesus from one end of the island to the other. And that was the first stage of the missionary venture. Today we're going to be studying the, the second count of that first adventure. We really focused last week on who Paul preached to, what that message was to them. This week, in Luke's account here, we're going to see what they preached. This is the first recorded sermon by Paul. And to me, that means it's important. I mean, he took word for word that he could here. Luke preserved for us this sermon 
um, how the Apostle Paul presented Jesus to the world. If we're ever going to be a, per- a church that focuses on our destination, this is valuable truth for us. Before we begin to look at that sermon, we need to set the scene. Starting in verse 13, chapter, um, chapter 13 of Acts, Paul and his companions, notice real quick, Paul and his companions, no longer Barnabas and Saul, or Barnabas and Paul, but now Paul and his companions, then left Paphos by ship for Pamphylia, landing at the port town of Perga. There John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem, but Paul and Barnabas traveled inland to Antioch of Poseidon. On the Sabbath, they went to the synagogue for service after the usual reading of the books of Moses and the prophets. Those in charge of the service sent them this message. Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, come and give it. It's at this point, Paul takes lead position of the mission team. Up to this point, it's always been Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas has been the lead But after their visit to Cyprus and God's working through the gifts of Paul, now it becomes Paul who is listed first. Paul and his companions enter the city of Antioch. And as normal custom, they go to the synagogue. He goes in there and he sits down. And just like many of you, you came here, you sit down, and you expect to hear the reading of God's word. That's what they went there. It was a universal truth. No matter where they were at that time, you went into the synagogue, you'd hear the word of God. They'd hear the Shema, hear, O Lord, the Lord our God is one. They would have done that in Hebrew, not in my dialect. And then they would have offered the time for somebody to give an exegesis of the text. Two visitors that day, one of them, Paul, had been brought up under the tutelage of the greatest Jewish teacher of that day, Daniel. They turned to Paul and says, do you have anything to say? Can you enlighten us with God's truth? And Paul says, no, I don't have anything to say. No, that's not ever what Paul would say. Of course not. He takes the opportunity that's been presented and uses the platform to proclaim Jesus. How do you and I proclaim Jesus? How should we present him? Today we're going to see in this passage how Paul presented Jesus on this first missionary journey. And hopefully we can see some timeless truths about how we need to do the exact same thing in our own lives. So after being asked this, Paul seizes the opportunity and look what he says, verse 16. Paul stood, lifted his hand to quiet them and started speaking. Men of Israel, he said, and you God-fearing Gentiles, listen to me. Now, we've got to look at this. Sitting there, Paul stands up. He addresses two different crowds. The Jewish people, those who are raised in the faith, those who have the understanding. They've been there a long time. They know all this. That's normal. But then what is surprising, he addresses the God-fearers, those who are Gentiles. There are Gentile people who have not grown up in the Jewish religion. They were interested in the Jewish God and that whole faith. And so they're attending the synagogues. They're a little bit distant because they're not allowed in the normal parts. And Paul addresses both. Normally, the God-fears would not be addressed at all. It would be like if we're here. 
all you people of St. Joe, and then all you others who live somewhere else. All you who go to Eastside, and then you heathens that go to a different school. That's kind of what they were doing then. They were segregated, separated by this. But Paul brings them together. He addresses them. He seizes the opportunity and makes the most of it. When was the last time you were somewhere and someone says, we, we'd like you to address this group about your faith? I can actually say that's happened to me a few times. But would you be willing to do that if they said, no, of course, Sunday morning, yeah, sitting here, of course I'd do that. But would you really be willing and able to do that? Now, throughout this sermon today, instead of giving you just one big application point at the end, there's a few things that we're going to look at. First, opportunities don't just happen. They're planned. Paul went to the synagogue. Oftentimes, uh, Things don't just happen, they, arrive, they don't arise out of nowhere. We, we set up things in motion and then seize those opportunities. In most sports, uh, you'll hear the coaches tell their athletes, you've got to create the opportunities to score. They may look a little different in different ways, depending on how you train, your diet, or the sport. In, in a wrestling match, there are setups, fakes, footwork, creating angles, all of them are made to use to move the opponent so you can create the opportunity to score. If you're doing it in basketball, you're going to do some fakes and, and moves just so you can get the person out of the way so you can create an opportunity to score. And that's what Paul does here. It says, on that Sabbath, they went into the synagogue and sat down. He puts him himself into a position where he is going to be able to give a chance to talk about Jesus. He knows that he's got some fame. He's Saul of Tarsus. He is the Pharisee of Pharisees. And he goes in there, and as soon as they see him, they, he can say, okay, they're going to look. They may just call on me. I'm going to be ready to give it. He traveled hundreds of miles by foot, and he's planning all this. There's planning that took place. He, when he went onto the island, you didn't just think. He flipped a coin and said, well, let's take this road then. Well, we'll go this way. He is planning it, thinking, praying, and asking God. You and I don't normally do things that we don't plan. Uh, if you don't plan a vacation, you probably don't take one. If you don't plan a birthday party, you won't have a birthday party. That's why several ladies in our church are still in their 30s. They've never celebrated it. If you don't plan for a retirement, you don't have a retirement. We need people, we need to be the people that plan for situations to make opportunities where we can share Jesus. Instead of just waiting for that moment to magically or mystically appear out of nowhere, we need to create opportunities so that we can score for the kingdom of God, so we can share Jesus. Have you ever planned a witnessing encounter? Have you ever planned, I'm going to go there, I'm going to say this, and see if they take that date. I'm actually going to wear this shirt so that it prompts them to do something. A friend of mine, Michael Hesterman, a minister up um, just north of here a bit, he's got Jesus Is. There's stickers back there. It's on his shirt. It's on all of his vehicles. And people are always coming, Jesus is what? He created an opportunity. 
and now he tells them. And in fact, he was texting me last night because one of my Bible nuggets, it was really, what are you going to say Jesus is to you? And he picked up, you just said Jesus is. How many people talk to you about it? <laughs> no, I think it's, we'll keep going. Create an opportunity. Are we creating an opportunity? It didn't just happen to Paul. He put effort into it. When people go on mission trips, they work, they plan, they trip so that they can share the gospel. When we had our VBS several weeks ago, the whole week of VBS was a massive opportunity created to share the life of Jesus into those kids. It was an opportunity created. Paul not only created the opportunity, he seized the opportunity when it happens. To them, uh, to tell them about Jesus, tell them about the gospel. I, I, I grew up in church. What is the gospel? I thought it was God spell, is what I thought really growing up, because one of my preachers had a little lisp or something. So what is the gospel? It's just the good news. But it is the good news about Jesus. That's what the gospel is. It is the good news about Jesus that is for you and I. It is the greatest news. And Paul begins to share Jesus here. He doesn't stand up and share about his encounters. He doesn't get up and start telling about all of his education. Now, it's possible that Paul modeled his sharing of Jesus after Stephen. Paul's pattern here, his sermon outline, is incredibly similar to Stephen's sermon. If you remember, when we looked at the... Um, stoning of Stephen, we read his entire sermon because it was so powerful. It was a gospel message. Stephen presented Jesus as the Messiah, and it is very likely the pre-converted Paul, which would have been Saul at that time, not only was there, but could have even debated because Scripture says nobody could argue against Stephen. And, well, Paul is an arguer. You can see that in some of his writings. He likes to argue. He likes to debate this. And it's very likely he was there. He argued against Paul and he, or against Stephen, and he lost. And now years later, as Paul stands here in another group of believers, of Jews, I mean, he shares Jesus in his sermon, very similar to Stephen's. Paul takes the people, just like Stephen did in that synagogue, to a history lesson first. He's creating a large foundation of agreement on the form. What did they all agree on? Well, they agreed that God is the Father of Israel, that God is the only one. They agreed that God's presence and activity was throughout history. When we share Jesus with someone, we need to point or go to a point of agreement. If I come up to you and I want to share the gospel, I say, hey, you know what? You're going to hell. I'm not. Well, automatically, you're not going to listen to me. But if we come up with a point of agreement, hey, I know you notice you've been going to this activity. I've been going there. And we come alongside them. That's what the point of that. Paul starts at a point of agreement by taking them through the major elements of Israel's history. Are they ever going to deny this? No. It's truth. They know this. Acts 17, look what he or 13, verse 17. The God of this nation, Israel, shows our ancestors, made them multiply and grow, grow strong during their stay in Egypt. And with a powerful arm, he led them out of their slavery. 
He put up with them through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Then he destroyed seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to Israel as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After that, God gave them judges to rule until the time of Samuel the prophet. Notice where Paul starts. He starts with God did this. Not the Israelites, not the Jews. God did this. God brought about this. God handed them this. He starts with what both Jews and those God-fears, Gentiles, would agree on. The existence, the power, the provision, and the providence of God. God. Who chose your fathers? Who chose these forefathers in the events of Israel's history? Well, it was God. Who made them great during their Egypt stay? God did. Who put up with them for 40 years? God did. Who destroyed the seven nations? Who gave them judges? God did all this. And Paul starts at this point of agreement. And then he continues to build on this case, performing in all these. And, and I have no doubt that Paul is recounting their history. And they're sitting there going, yes, that's right. God did that. God did that. Amen. All right. Yes, keep going. I, I can tell you when that happens to any preacher, when somebody's out, out there going, yes, that's right, preach it. Amen. It fuels him, and I can see, yeah, thank you, he just did it. I can see Paul going, okay, I've got them. Now we can turn on this point of agreement and start walking to the truth of this. Look what he says, starting in verse 21. Then the people begged for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, who reigned for 40 years. But God removed Saul, notice who's doing all this, and replaced him with David, a man of about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. God gave them a king. Israel realized this guy that we chose is not really who we think he should be. It's not the type of king we need. And so God said, great, now you'll listen to me. And he brought in a better king. Now, why did Paul begin at this point of agreement? Because Paul had a destination. And all this, he knew where he was going to take these Jews and God-fearers to bring them out to one place. He uses David, this huge point of agreement, to plant the seed. Look what he said in verse 23. And it is one of King David's descendants, Jesus, who is God's promised Savior of Israel. He starts off with this big thing, God over all of Israel, God doing all this, and laser down right to Jesus. God did this, God did this, God did this, God brought Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe in a divine plan behind all of human history? Do you believe that God orchestrates, that God is making things happen according to his purposes? Does, does this world really make sense to you if you remove God from the timeline? If you're a believer in Jesus, you understand that God is sovereign. He is over all this. And that means all of history, all of history culminates with Jesus all of it before Jesus is pointing to the coming Savior. And after Jesus, it all pointing back saying, see, he did it. Now come to him. 
God's sovereignty in the world's history did not stop at Jesus' first coming. He is still orchestrating the events of history, which are leading up to the second coming. That's where history is going, not randomly. God has a destination in mind for all of history. He's got a destination in mind for all of us. Take that out for a moment. What if history really led to nothing? What if Jesus isn't the one? The obvious conclusion Paul came to in 1 Corinthians 15 is that if Jesus isn't alive, that he's not the Savior, if history is not leading to that ultimate conclusion, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There's no use in anything. Live a life of complete and total debauchery and self-indulgence, eat, drink, party, and move on, because it doesn't matter. And if we approach life as there's no divine plan, as there's no point to all this, then we're going to find something to actually point our life at. If it's not God, we're going to find something to direct our life to. And do you know what happens if it's not God? Then we point our life toward ourselves. I become the center of the universe. I become the point of human existence. Everything all of a sudden begins to revolve around me, my wants, my desires, my interests, goals, and success. And this becomes a very selfish worldview, and it sounds very similar to the world we're living in right now. What Paul says is all of history does lead to a destination, and that destination revolves around the Son of God. Around Jesus. He is the nexus that brings it all together. He brings order out of this sinful chaos. Then Paul turns to the present in this sermon. So he he started with the full past. He brought it down, lasered down to Jesus. And look what he says here. In, In the present day of Paul's time, there was, you had to have witnesses. Many Jews believe that John the Baptist was a prophet. Notice here, verse 24, before Jesus came, John the Baptist preached that all the people of Israel need to repent of their sins, turn to God, and be baptized. As John was finishing his ministry, he asked, do you think I am the Messiah? No, I am not. But he is coming soon, and I am not even worthy to be a slave and untie the sandals on his feet. Uh, What John the Baptist is saying is he's not worthy to remove sandals. Have you ever had a sick kid or are you around somebody who was kind of sick and they were out doing something and their feet were gross? So um, this was several years ago. One of our boys, and I'm not going to tell you, but it was Austin. Um, he just started feeling sick. And so we went to put him to bed and I had the honor of taking his shoes and socks off because yes, he was And do you know what it's like to peel socks off of a gross boy's foot who apparently was walking around in a creek with his socks and shoes on? And seeing all the... I wasn't worthy of that. I was above that. That's what I think. But John here is saying, no, I wouldn't be even worthy of that if it was Jesus' feet. There's no one other... In Jesus, in John the Baptist's mind. And he was the first witness of this, John the Baptist. Then uh, Paul brings in the next present-day witnesses. They're witnesses who put Jesus to death. They saw this. They killed him. Verse 26. 
brothers, you son of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles. Notice he's still bringing them together. This message of salvation has been sent to us. The people in Jerusalem, their leaders did not recognize Jesus as their prophets, as the prophets had spoken about. Instead, they condemned him. And in doing this, they fulfilled the prophet's words that we are reading every Sabbath. He points to John the Baptist as a witness. Now the leaders in, Ju- in Israel, they are witnesses to what has happened. Their condemnation of Jesus is actually a testimony, a validity of what Jesus is. And if you don't believe it, look at all the Old Testament. That's what Paul's saying. Look at all this. We've read this. Every day we read this. Every Sunday we come together and Jesus fulfilled it. Verse 28. They found no legal reason to execute him because he was sinless. But they asked Pilate to have him killed anyway. When they had done all that the prophecy said about him, they took him down from the cross and placed him in the tomb. Here's the witnesses continuing to do this. And Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies on another witness about who Jesus is. And that verse concludes with Jesus dying, laying in a tomb. But Paul does not stop there. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. Paul always brings in the truth into the equation when he's presenting Jesus. When he comes to this point, he is saying, Jesus died for you, as John the Baptist said, as the leaders of Israel said, and as all the prophets of Old Testament said. It all happened, and he died for you. But God raised him up. Look what he says in verse 31. And over a period of many days, Jesus appeared to those who had gone with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to the people of Israel. These are the people that are still alive as Paul is giving this address. He is really saying, go and ask them. If I were to tell you that I saw something fantastic and I didn't have any proof or any corroborating evidences or witnesses, it would be kind of doubtful. But if I can bring two or three witnesses to give testimony that what I saw or what I experienced is real, it becomes more valid. And that's what Paul is saying. John the Baptist, he did this. All the prophets of the old, they said this. The leaders in Jerusalem, they saw this. Not only that, but go ask all the people who saw him after he was raised alive. You don't want one or two witnesses. I'll give you hundreds. That's what Paul is saying. He could have said, before my conversion, I put immense pressure on them. He could have said this. Paul could have said, I was the one who denied their claims. I chose this. But instead, he pointed to the witnesses of the people who knew Jesus. What he's saying is credible witnesses confirm Jesus. How many of you have had an encounter with Jesus? I mean, really, you've had, you've had your life transformed by him. You've had your sins taken away. You've had healing, patience, guidance, and more poured out into you. Aren't you a witness? Aren't you called to be his witness then? Which means any time one of us says something, we can go, I can testify. I can witness to that. I can tell you how God is sovereign in my life. I can tell you how he's given me patience and guidance and truth. I can tell you how he's given me providence, how he's protected me. I can tell you how he's disciplined me. I can tell you how he restored me, how he brought me home. Paul 
always saying there are all these witnesses, but in truth, aren't we all supposed to be those witnesses? Every prophecy, every prediction, every type and shadow in the Old Testament was fulfilled in Jesus and now is living in you and me. As Christians, our whole purpose for existence is helping people come to the right understanding about who Jesus is, and that means we are his witnesses. That doesn't mean we come and sit in church. It doesn't mean we try to show them a good life. That's what we've been called to do is that phrase up there. Not come to church, not only meet in small groups, but to go out and help people connect with Jesus. What what is our three points of our church here? Connect, grow, and serve. Connect with God and with, uh, with people in his name. Grow in faith and serve all in his name. It all points to Jesus. It's all about connecting with him. When we're with each other, it's pointing at him. When we're growing in faith, it's because of him. When we serve other people, it's because of him. Which means, all three of those, you're a witness. After sharing Jesus with, with them, Paul tells them to do something. Brothers, listen. He didn't say, men of Israel and God fears. His word changed. Brothers, there's a bit of unity here. Listen, we are here to proclaim that through this man, Jesus, there is forgiveness for your sins. Everyone who believes in him is made right in God's sight. Something the law of Moses could never do. How many of us have ever sinned? Well, all of us, right? I mean, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Scripture even tells us that. Um, Ecclesiastes 7, surely there's not even one righteous person on earth. Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from sin? The answer is none of us. All of us need forgiveness. And here's the thing that we need to do when we come to expose, um, come to an agreement, we need to expose our deepest need with those people we are witnessing to. The deepest need of humanity. And the deepest need is not political. The deepest need is not educational or economics or even relational. The deepest need that people need is a spiritual need because they are separated from the spiritual life that they were first designed for. We need forgiveness of our sin. And sharing Jesus will be incomplete if you don't communicate that. If you don't communicate that they need forgiveness of sin, that you needed forgiveness of sin, you're not sharing all of Jesus. Exposing our deepest needs leads to an obvious question. If forgiveness of sin is our deepest need, then how can we have our sins forgiven? Paul tells us in verse 39, everyone who believes is freed, and freedom comes by Jesus. The only way to receive forgiveness of sins is by Jesus. And who is it available to? Everyone. There's not the separation anymore. Twice Paul made that distinction between Jews and God-fears. But here there is no distinction. They are all sinners who need to come together under the one Jesus. You have to believe it, he said. You have to depend on it. You have to accept it. 
And what happens when you believe? What happens when you believe? It says you will be freed. The word is, in the common Greek word, is normally translated justified. It means declared not guilty. That means you are no longer guilty of the weight of the consequences for what you have done. You have now become righteous in God's sight. Now, if I were to stand up here and say, I am a righteous man, you would say, Donnie's an arrogant man. But I don't have to say it. God says it. Because of Jesus, he takes away my right, my guilt. He takes away my sin and he places righteousness on me. Not because I'm good, but because he is. And because we are all under that one God, we all can say this. I am a righteous man because of God. I am forgiven because of Jesus. I am imperfect because of me. But I have a perfect God who is saving You ask any lost person, what do you think you, uh, would you think you'll be allowed to go to heaven? And I've had a youth group ask people this at a Walmart before. Most of the time, 99% of the time, why do they think they're going to heaven? Because they're a good person. That's what it takes. That's what they think. There is no amount of good deeds, no amount of keeping the law, no amount of being a good person that can free you from the guilt of sin. Paul said it, not even the law of Moses could save you. Only Jesus can. Are we responsible to make people accept Jesus Christ? No, not at all. It's not my job to make you accept Christ. We are not responsible for that. God is. One of the worst things we could ever say is we only had X number of people give their lives to Christ. We only had that many. We have to surrender those results to God. We need to rest in God's sovereignty and let him do with whatever he wants to. He is going to do these things in Jesus' life, if he, or in their lives. Has he done this in our lives? Then we need to trust he'll do it in theirs. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 7. Paul said, I planted the seed in your hearts and Apollo watered it, but it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting, who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. I get teased all the time. As a preacher, I only work one day a week. And you know who usually makes fun of me? Farmers. And so here's what I like to say to farmers. They work two weeks a year. One week to plant, one week to harvest. The other 50 weeks, they just sit in the, in the house watching God do all the work. Because a farmer can't make the seed grow. He can spray all the stuff to try and get rid of the, the pests or the weeds. He can till the ground. He can try to even put irrigation to make it water. But he cannot make it grow. He can just provide the right atmosphere for God to make it grow. That's what a farmer is. He is an example of what we are to do with the word of God to plant that in everybody else's life. And I don't care if you don't like it or not, I'm going to plant the word of God near you. I'm going to water it near you because God can and will make it grow. Not me. And not you. But God will. Paul's first missionary journey began 
It wasn't about his service. It wasn't about this group or that group. It was all about Jesus. It was all about sharing the message of Christ with people who desperately need to hear it. Paul provided and made the opportunity happen so he could share. He purposely came alongside others. And what you and I need to see is we are on a faith journey, just like Paul was. And we need to go wherever we are in this life where God has called us to be set apart like he set Paul and Barnabas. Set apart from this world so that we can start preparing the way, making opportunities for people to come hear the truth. He's called every one of us to be witnesses. We need to accept and join this adventure of a lifetime. I know many people who went on that Antarctic trip didn't make it. They, they lost their lives in that. And, and that is heartbreaking. But why would they jump to do that? For the chance to have some meaningful adventure. The most meaningful adventure you'll ever find is living a life of Christ. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, one of the hardest things when you are doing that is watching people that you have tried to water, plant that seed, and they walk away. It's so hard sometimes for us to see people who know the truth, and they walk away. It's not your fault. The rich young man, he walked away from Jesus. It's your job, it's my job to share it, to say it, to plant that seed of faith, to water it and encourage it. It's not your job to make the results. It's your job to have faith in the God who makes results. Where are you going to be this day? Are you going to be able to stand and say, I'll be your witness? I'm going to say it. I'm going to make opportunities. I'm going to come alongside people and make sure they know my life points at Jesus. We're going to stand and we're going to have another time of, of singing. And let's go and praise him. Thank him for this. And then live our lives that way.